Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Peter Sarkis from London Institute of Medical Sciences on this show. Peter, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Cambridge. After that, you moved to do a postdoc with Eric Miska at the Gordon Institute. And since 2014, you are running your own lab at the London Institute of Medical Sciences. So to start off every interview, I like to ask the guests, how did you get into biology in the first place? So what was your the thing that motivated you to yeah, start your studies or get interested in biology in the first place? Yeah, so when I was uh, growing up, I was uh, really interested in, in lots of things, uh, fossils and um, medicine to a certain extent. My, my dad was a, a doctor um, and I was also really interested, actually, from a, a, the point of view of academic science, I got very interested in physics. And um, that was the subject that I was most interested in at school. And uh, it's actually what I wanted to, to, to do. I wanted to study physics. But then I read uh, The Selfish Gene, which was a very different way of thinking because for me, it turned biology from a subject which was quite observational at school. It was sort of, you know, looking at the plants or the animals and um, it turned it into something where you could try to explain the behavior of animals from a very algorithmic standpoint and because i was very interested in physics um that really appealed to me and that's what made me passionate to find out more about um about biology and evolution and still coming at it from a very uh, algorithmic basis the type that uh, dawkins promulgates uh, through his books very successfully and um i should say that you know my view on evolution has changed a lot since then but uh That was really a, a spark which started me thinking about biology. And then um, from that, I was more interested in learning more about biology. And that's when I found out about biochemistry and the link between trying to uh, understand how molecules behave and then being able to explain biological systems. And I was just absolutely fascinated by that i remember learning about the uh the mitochondria for example when i was in secondary school and um just being really uh, excited about that and about how um atp is made and really wanting to be able to understand that in more detail and that's why i went to study uh, as a, an undergraduate in uh, biochemistry so when you started your biochemistry studies um have you thought about Or what was your plan? Did you yeah, think about going or going down the academic path from the beginning? Or was it just, well, let's take this first step first and then move on? Yeah, well, interestingly, um, there was a little bit of uh, a sort of battle with my family, should we say, because uh, my, my father really wanted me to be a doctor. He thought that um, uh, uh, science was not a very secure career. And um, so I kept sort of bargaining with him almost. So I said, well, I'll study as biochemistry as an undergraduate and then I'll go into medicine after that. 
And then at the end, I managed to convince him that I could do a PhD and then go into medicine. So I kept sort of pushing it back. And the PhD kind of, it, it, I, um, I had a good time, really enjoyed it, actually. Um, I was working with Julian Sale at the uh, LMB, and um, it, it was it was just a very, very exciting experience. And so at the end of that, I think it was quite clear that I wanted to sort of stay in science, and I, I kind of managed to convince my dad that <laughs> that, that was okay. <laughs> and uh, so then, um, yeah, since then, um, I guess that... I haven't really been very career minded. It's not like I've got some master plan. I've just been trying to keep doing research as long as I'm still allowed to, if you like, as long as I can still get funding to do it. Um, and uh, so I, I think I still don't really have like a, a grand plan and maybe it won't work out. Maybe I'll have to leave. But uh, at least while I'm enjoying doing research and I still actually can do um can find out new things then and that's uh enough for me so let's talk about the research you are doing um that centers around as you already touched briefly upon transgenerational in inheritance of epi mutations uh, maybe we can use a perspective from 2013 in nature that you wrote together with eric miska as an entry point into this topic and um, the title of this was is there social rna And we already did one episode on transgenerational inheritance. This was episode number 33 with Audit Richavi. And coming back to this publication, there you raised the question, can RNA traffic integrate an organism into its environment? Is there social RNA? Um, can you maybe talk about what you meant by the term social RNA? Uh, to me, this does not refer to inheritance like right away. Uh, yes. So, um, well, so... The social RNA perspective was um, quite a uh, yeah. I, I, it, it was a sort of a, a controversial thing to sort of say at the time, I suppose. But what we were really trying to explain is a very curious phenomenon, which is that the nematode C. elegans has this ability to take up double-stranded RNA from its environment and to then use that to silence genes. And this is really useful as an experimental tool because you can actually feed C. elegans with bacteria that express double-strand RNA. And then that double-strand RNA, they take it up and then they can silence a, a particular gene. So if you want to knock down a gene in development, see what it does, it's fantastically useful, right? But um, I think it's pretty unlikely that nematodes evolved in order to make it easy for researchers to study them. So the question is, why do they have the machinery there that enables them to do this rather unusual activity? And um, that was really what we were speculating about in that perspective. And um, I think it's it, it, it's something that perhaps, I, I yeah, I, I'm not sure how well that has stood the test of time, but there are some recent publications um, from uh, the the Murphy lab, for example, which suggests that there might be some evidence that that happens. So, yeah, maybe uh, there was something in it. So the first paper out of your own lab focused then on DNA alkylation damage. Um, so this was 
kind of new to me. <laughs> so can you briefly explain what DNA alkylation is and how it is connected to DNA methylation and also writers of DNA methylation? Yeah, so I think it's probably worth if I just take a step back and say what the overall interest was when I set up my lab. So basically, when I was working with Eric, um, I moved from working on epigenetic inheritance in mammals to moving on to epigenetic inheritance in C. elegans. And this involved having to learn very quickly rather a lot about these extremely complicated small RNA pathways that exist in C. elegans. And one of these we've just touched on, but this is the incredible ability to take up double-strand RNA from the environment, process it, and then to silence genes. But um, the other key pathway in C. elegans small RNAs that was of great interest to, 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 to Eric's lab and um, many others in the, the, the field was uh, the pi RNA pathway. So pi RNAs are a type of small RNA which um, was best understood from Drosophila where they're involved in silencing transposable elements. And um, in Drosophila, there's a very particular mechanism whereby these are, are made from these sort of long precursor transcripts, which then get cut up and made into um, smaller RNAs. And then there's an amplification mechanism called ping pong. And what happens here is that the pi RNA itself recognizes a transposable element. That transposable element gets cut up to make another pi RNA which has a complementary sequence to the original one. It's very neat because that means then that the production of the original um, pi RNA can be accelerated by this process. You can sort of get feedback between the two. Um, and um, it's thought that this is perhaps an amplification mechanism for pi RNAs that recognize active transposons. So um, this is, I think, it's reasonable to say that this is kind of ancestral mechanism to um, pi RNAs because you find the same kind of mechanism in mouse, in Drosophila, also in very ancestral uh, metazoans such as uh, um, jellyfish and things like that. But nematodes are very different. Um, in particular, C. elegans, um, which was at the time the only one where anyone had ever looked at pi RNAs, were um, in C. elegans. Each pi RNA, and this is quite amazing because there are like 15,000 pi RNAs, each pi RNA has its own tiny transcriptional locus. Mm -hmm. And this produces a small RNA, which is only about 28 nucleotides long. And it gets further chopped up to make a pi RNA of um, 21 nucleotides. And what's amazing about this is that each of these tiny units is made by RNA polymerase two, And there's a motif just upstream, and this motif is highly predictive. So you can kind of predict really accurately the pi RNA on the basis of this motif. And what fascinated me is you've got this kind of system which seems very ancestral to animals, right? And yet in C. elegans, the biogenesis mechanism is completely distinct. So you've got to have some way of kind of imagining that, I mean, what happened in evolution? Did both of these systems coexist for a while? Or um, did it lose 
the original mechanism completely and then gain a new one? Very uh, sort of difficult questions to answer. And it occurred to me that um, this was a kind of fundamental problem, actually. Um, and I think at the time, I'm not sure the extent to which people had really looked at this. And maybe it took somebody coming in from outside who had to learn all about small RNAs very quickly to, to think about it as being a problem rather than as just being a sort of curious fact. So what I thought to do was actually to go back as far as we could go along the nematode tree. And um, I actually had a sort of side interest in um, parasites. And so I knew that a lot of nematodes were parasites and therefore that people worked on them. Um, and so I got in touch with a lot of people, did a lot of Googling and collected all these nematode samples from across the um, sort of tree of nematodes, going back as far as we could. And um, I got some help from this from the experts like Mark Blackster, who's kind of an expert on nematode uh, nematode evolution. And he told me the sort of species and gave me some tips about who I could contact. And uh, I was expecting that maybe I'd find a nematode which had a Drosophila-like pyrene pathway or something like that. That was a dream. But instead, what happened was kind of frustrating but also really interesting which was that in every single nematode i looked i couldn't find any pyronase so i did sequencing and we looked at their genomes and there was no evidence of the peewee protein and no evidence of the um presence of these small rnas either and um you know once or twice i kept thinking well is this because you know i haven't haven't looked properly in the genome or or is there something something wrong in the way that we're looking at this but it just kept happening in so many times that um, eventually came to the conclusion that actually most nematode groups have actually lost pyrones altogether. Um, and lost or didn't uh, have? No, actually lost. So the reason you know that it's lost is because this is an ancestral pathway to all animals, right? So it's very, very unlikely that um, the uh, the, 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 the nematodes kind of never had pyronase and then C. elegans managed to regain the, 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 the peewee protein. Um, that's, the, uh, that's very unlikely. Um, and in fact, actually, although this wasn't in the original publication that we had in Plus Biology, but later on we found an ancestral nematode that still has pyronase, which makes it even less unlikely. Um, so, the, this is it, it, basically it was this work that started me thinking that there's a whole universe out there of these kinds of things. So nematodes have really cool pyrones, which are very different, but other species have lots of other things that are probably different about their epigenetic mechanisms and. I think that trying to understand that is a really, really interesting question. And I'm absolutely fascinated by it, by trying to trace the evolution of these different epigenetic mechanisms and then try to understand a little bit about why that might happen. So when I started my own group, I thought that I was going to be spending time trying to really reconstruct the pyRNA pathway in nematodes, because although we discovered that a lot of nematodes don't have it, well, the first thing is why don't they have it? And we still don't have any idea about that. You know, 
I think that's probably the closest that I would come to sort of selling my soul to um, uh, the devil or something. So you, you, you said that they are they are. Um, um, <laughs> I forgot the, the word, but um, you said that they um, can infect other uh, species, right? Um, parasites, that was the word. <laughs> They're parasitic uh, the worms. And maybe it has to do something with the, the bacteria that live inside of those animals that they maybe lost it because they would also shed the microRNAs. Um, the microbiome of the, the host, maybe. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think that the niche, the parasitic niche of parasitic nematodes are actually very diverse. Okay. So the number of them that, I mean, there are uh, many that live in the guts of mammals, but there are lots of parasitic nematodes that live in plants, for example. Mm. Um, also, some nematodes have life cycles that uh, involve them living for parts of their life in the lung of mammals okay. uh, and in muscle cells so i don't think it's and in fact i think it's 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 if there is a relationship to parasitism it is not straightforward because there are some parasitic nematodes for example nipostrongius uh, brasiliensis hemorrhagus contortus which are actually very closely related to C. elegans, and these actually have pyronase. They've got quite a lot of pyronase. And there are some free-living nematodes that don't have pyronase. Okay. So it is certainly not a straightforward relationship. There may be a connection to parasitism, um, but uh, it is not a one-to-one -one relationship by any means. So as I say, we don't know why nematodes keep losing the pyronase pathway. and um, It's the closest that I would come to, you know, if someone, if, if the devil came to me and said, uh, I'll tell you the answer to that question um, in return for your soul, I would be very tempted, actually, because it's something that, you know, keeps me up at night. But I'm not sure how easy it is to solve that, that question. Um, but the other question that we don't understand is still we don't, we didn't know how C. elegans pyronase became so different from the pyronase that you find in um, Drosophila. Uh, and so we spent um, some time looking at that. But at the same time, when I started my lab, I was also um, surrounded by a lot of people who were working on DNA methylation. At the time, again, I didn't know very much about DNA methylation, but one thing I did know was that a lot of organisms don't have it. And in a similar way to how many organisms have lost in nematodes have lost the pi RNAs, um, many organisms have lost DNA methylation. And in fact, this is even more extreme actually, because um, in animals, you know, they're, they're, we see independent losses of DNA methylation, we see it in Drosophila, see independent loss in, in nematodes. We see that um, because you can trace DNA methylation back to the original eukaryotes, and we know that because plants have DNA methylation and animals have DNA methylation, Nevertheless, things like fungi, many protists, they've also lost DNA methylation. So here we have a situation where there's this repeated loss. And it seemed to me that this was an example where um, this evolutionary approach would be really interesting to try to understand why so many organisms have lost DNA methylation. So, so this was kind of a... What, 
comparative um, study to to see if there is a comparison to the pyRNA? Well, initially it sort of started like that, but more particularly it came to be just a basic question of why is DNA methylation lost so frequently? And um, what I decided to do was to take a very straightforward approach to this, which was actually to look to see if there were any proteins that co-evolved with DNA methylation. Right. So are there any proteins that are present when DNA methylation is present and absent when DNA methylation is absent? And that's where we came across um, this alkylation damage idea. And the reason for that is because um, there's uh, a protein, ALKB2, which is uh, present in most species which have DNA methylation and it's been lost in species that don't have DNA methylation. So the function of ALKB2 is to remove a very particular type of alkylation damage from the DNA. So that is 3-methylcytosine. Right? So normally, DNA methyltransferases introduce 5-methylcytosine. So 3-methylcytosine is what is prepared by ALKB2. Why might it be that DNA methyltransferases co-evolve with ALKB2. Really simple idea is that maybe DNA methyltransferases don't just introduce 5-methylcytosine, maybe they introduce 3-methylcytosine as well. So 3-methylcytosine, I should point out, is a very dangerous form of DNA damage. It is interfering with base pairing, And as a result, it means that if replication encounters 3-methylcytosine, it blocks the replication fork and it can lead to a double-strand break. So it's very dangerous. And um, the ALKB2 exists, um, it, which exists uh, to repair this, um, is required to sort of defend against chemicals that introduce 3-methylcytosine into the DNA. So this simple hypothesis is that maybe DNA methyltransferases could introduce 3-methylcytosine. Maybe they form alkylation damage. And so we teamed up with Petra Heikova, who's at the uh, LMS where I was based at the time, and her lab had developed techniques to look at base modifications in DNA. And so together with her, we worked out a way that we could look at 3-methylcytosine and measure it by mass spec. So this was required because um, it's not the sort of thing that you could look at at sequencing. It's very low abundance firstly, and also there weren't any techniques. We don't actually know still how bisulfite sequencing, for example, behaves with 3-methylcytosine. We don't know if it's affected or not. So we had to develop this technique distinguishing between 5- and 3-methylcytosine. And um, together with, with Petra, we managed to do this. Um, this was uh, uh, really important because it allowed us to actually see what would happen if we look at the level of 3-methylcytosine in cells that don't have DNA methyltransferases and compared to cells that do. And we found that cells that don't have DNA methyltransferases have a much reduced level of 3-methylcytosine. In fact, it almost wipes it out completely. So the major endogenous source of 3-methylcytosine is the activity of DNA methyltransferases. And together with the Albert Yelch lab in um, uh, Stuttgart, 
we were able to show that this is actually a property of the enzymes in vitro catalytic activity. So they introduce at very low levels this highly toxic form of DNA damage. And so that firstly explains why you get coevolution between ALP2 and DNA methyltransferases. But secondly, it gives you a reason why maybe organisms don't like to have DNA methylation. If they could possibly get away without it, then there's an attraction to losing it. I mean, I'm being very anthropomorphic here, but um, it, it, it provides an evolutionary pressure potentially to lose DNA methylation. And so um, that is uh, a potential reason why you get such frequent loss of DNA methylation across um, evolution. And uh, so that was what we uh, discovered and we uh, published it in a, a nature genetics paper um, a few years back. And um, we're kind of still interested in the consequences of that for um, uh, you know trying to understand a bit more about DNA methylation. But what it also shows is it's a good example of how looking at something from an evolutionary basis can actually give us insights that are highly relevant to mammals, right? Because this property of the enzyme no doubt has consequences for what the um, effect of DNA methylation is in mammalian cells. So the, this modification also is present in mammals? Well, absolutely. I mean, our work um, was done with, uh, work, so, so to actually demonstrate okay. that um, three methylcytosine is present, we use mammalian cells, actually. Um, we used uh, embryonic stem cells, mouse embryonic stem cells, where um, it's possible to knock out all the DNA methyltransferases and then compare to when the DNA methyltransferases are expressed. So yes, indeed, in mammalian cells, DNA methyltransferase introduces 3-methylcytosine. And this would be even higher were it not for the activity of ALP2 in repairing it. So let's come back to the pyrenees. <laughs> I'm yeah. somehow struggling a bit to find a good path through this interview because you touched upon many of my questions already, but maybe we can can move on by because you explained the basic principle of pyrenees, but you looked also in like on the aspect of transgenerational inheritance of pyrenees. Um so maybe can you talk about this uh, for a little bit what you did in that respect? Yeah, so um I mean I think The, the, so the major work on on this has been done by by other labs, really. I mean, I was involved in it when I was a postdoc. Um, mm -hmm. But the key thing is that in nematodes, pyRNAs initiate transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Um, so silencing by the pyRNAs can initiate transgenerational inheritance, but they're not required to maintain that inheritance. And that's because of an enzyme called RNA-dependent RNA polymerase. And I'm sure you would have talked about this. Uh, you talked about this uh, with, with Oded in, in detail. But the key point about this enzyme is it allows a mechanism of amplification of small RNAs. Um, so this means that you can propagate an epigenetic memory over several generations, independent of the initial trigger. And that initial trigger can be the pi RNAs. Um, so mechanistically, this has been you know, done um, by, 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 by lots of labs, including Eric's lab. Um, and uh, what my lab's contribution to this has been is to try to understand 
what the relevance of this might be for evolution. So if you imagine that a silencing event can be inherited for many, many generations without any change in DNA sequence. So, sorry to interrupt you, but what is then the difference between evolution and inheritance? <laughs> so when do you speak right. about... I'm, I, just, just, just if, you, if, you, if you hold on, that's exactly what I'm trying to oh, um, okay. get to here. Yeah. So transgenerational inheritance of something... Um, of course, we're talking about epigenetics here, but of course, transgenerational inheritance is, in a canonical sense, what happens in evolution, right? So a classic idea of evolution is you get a mutation. That mutation in some way changes the way in which the genome works. This can lead to a phenotype, and that phenotype can either be beneficial or deleterious or neutral. but What happens is that um, different mutations can become fixed in a population. And as I say, importantly, this can often be completely random. Right? It doesn't have to be that beneficial things get fixed in populations. There can be neutral or even rarely deleterious things get fixed in po populations. But the crucial point there is that something can happen in an individual and then that individual's descendants then become more numerous. And that can lead to a change in the genotype of the population as a whole. Right? That's the idea that we all learn in school. Now, how does this relate to epigenetics? So in nematodes, and in fact, it's clear in many other organisms as well, but it's best understood, I think, in nematodes, you can get a solely epigenetic change which can lead to a silencing event of a particular gene. And that can be propagated transgenerationally between the generations for many, many generations and can be extremely stable, at least in the case of things like GFP. So you can turn the GFP off without changing the DNA sequence. And then that silent GFP can be inherited over several generations. So in theory, this could work in exactly the same way that a DNA sequence change could drive evolution, right? Maybe an epigenetic change could drive evolution. Maybe in a population, silent state could occur randomly in one individual, but then that could evolve, if you like, to take over the whole population. So this is something that is predicted from the studies that people have done looking mechanistically at transgenes and how they get turned on, because these transgenes can be silent for hundreds of generations. Right? Does it happen at endogenous genes? That's what you would need to show in order for this to be something that contribute to evolution. Right. And that's what we set out to test. And so because GFP GFP would be like an integrated from the outside gene and this would be different than let's say the gap DH or something. Yeah, exactly. Maybe. Um, I mean I think we still don't understand 
what differences there might be. But I mean, at the at the time, I guess we didn't know what would happen. Right? So maybe you can get silencing of endogenous genes, which could last for hundreds of generations in exactly the same way that you could with GFP. So that's what we set out to test. And we designed a particular experimental system to do that, where you look at um, a, a very, very small population size. And um, this was work that we did in collaboration with Rashali Katyu's lab. Um, and she was then at Texas. She's now moved to Uppsala in Sweden. And they had developed these lines for a different purpose, which is actually looking at mutations. Because if you want to study mutations, you have to do an analysis where you reduce the size of the population. And that's because otherwise natural selection will weed out anything that is bad, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So you want to have totally neutral and deleterious things all equally represented in order to study mutation. And we just adopted exactly the same approach, but to look at epigenetic changes instead. So we did small RNA sequencing and we looked to see whether we could see any changes in small RNAs that were um, occurring in these lines. Which locus or which genes were then looking at? Right, so we were just looking genome-wide to see whether any genes acquired lots and lots of small RNAs randomly, and then if it did, would that be perpetuated? And to cut a long story short, what we found was actually that... Um, Yes, it happens. It does happen that endogenous genes acquire small RNAs against them. And that's associated many times with silencing. Um, and this was work of a uh, you know, really great uh, uh, graduate student in the lab called Tony Beltran, who's now doing a, a postdoc. Um, and he really, um, really drilled down into this and was able to map over a short number of generations the half-life of these epimutations. And what we found is that they are not stable. So basically, the majority of epimutations, they don't last longer than around four generations. And it's very rare that they last longer than about 10 generations. And so, yes, you get random silencing events happening. And yes, they can be inherited, but they tend to go away again. And this is really interesting because people had done this work with DNA methylation in plants many years before, and it's exactly the same in plants, right? Slightly different time scale, but overall the same effect. They don't last forever, right? And um, it sort of makes you wonder whether there's some mechanism that's general or whether there's some you know, evolutionary pressure not to allow random epigenetic changes to be perpetuated indefinitely in the same way that a DNA mutation is. That's very speculative, but that's an idea that you might come up with on the basis of this, yeah. So you wouldn't need another stimulus that does the same to like propagate the same behavior? I mean, you had this famous example of the, the hunger winter in the Netherlands, right? And that you have like effects going like two or three generations forward but if you don't like starve again then you maybe go back to normal after a few generations as you just indicated and but if you again get get depraved as a, or get uh, starved then you would like propagate it even further 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I would, I would, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that the, the Dutch hunger winter is, a, 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 yeah, I'm not sure how. Yeah, but it's, it's a prominent example, right? But it's yeah, it's a, yeah, it's an example. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's often cited. Um, I think a controversial one, but yeah, um, absolutely right. So, how could these transient changes that we see in nematodes contribute to evolution? The way in which I see that happening is that they might allow enough time for a DNA sequence change to arise in the population, which would be much more stable. And you could get this kind of takeover idea. And actually, although he didn't put it in quite those kind of molecular terms, I guess, because he didn't know them, the, the, the molecular mechanisms. Waddington had a similar idea about um, the, the, the idea in which originally there could be changes which are non-genetic and then those get cemented as some sort of genetic change. And um, that's how I imagine it working. Um, but yeah, I mean, this these are things that we're actually now designing experiments to try and test in the lab. Um, with nematodes, yeah. So I have two questions that came to my mind right now. Um, so you said that you were sequencing the small RNAs, and before that we were talking about pi RNAs. So pi RNAs are also small RNAs, but is this the same thing or is it different? Yeah, well, I mean, we looked at pi RNAs, but actually it's a good, very good point. The pi RNAs did not show um, these kinds of epimutations, right? Uh, what we found is the RNAs that are made downstream of the pi RNAs, and these are these products of the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and we call them 22G RNAs, and that's because they're 22 nucleotides long, and they tend to start with a G. So the pi RNA triggers the production of these, but then they have a life of their own. They can be propagated independently of the initial trigger. And it was within these sets of RNAs that we found these kind of random silencing events that last for a few generations. The pi RNA fluctuations um, are much more limited and don't seem to be perpetuated. Um, yeah. So the second question is then, so it's basically two different timescales, right? That the epigenetic and the genetic changes act in, right? So it's like epigenetics is like, short-lived and the short time scale and genetics is then for the big um, evolution time scales yeah well that's um yeah i think i think i think that's that's what we would say at the moment on the basis of the the, the evidence that we have mm -hmm. yeah but i think that what we haven't done is we haven't really put it into a situation where there's um a, 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 an evolutionary pressure and under those circumstances, it might be different. And in fact, um, people have done work with uh, yeast, for example, um, where an evolutionary pressure is applied. In this case, it's um, a drug, uh, caffeine. And there you can get epigenetic changes, which actually seem to drive evolution, but over a longer sort of time scale. Um, again, though, they seem to be associated eventually, I think, to make that very stable you would have a genetic takeover happening. Um, so, yeah, I think certainly for the neutral changes that we're looking at, the epigenetic changes are things that take place over short timescales. Um, 
maybe that could be extended if there's a selective pressure. But I think even then, it's unlikely to be a kind of indefinite situation unless you have a genetic change. They seem to be much more stable, difficult to reverse, if you like. So you also looked at transposable elements and that they are often regulated by those pyrenees, as you said. Um, and you did this in a long-term experiment. So was that part of that study that you just uh, talked about or was this a dis different um, study? Well, it was um, a, uh, a, a, a using the same kind of idea. But here... The changes that we were looking at in that situation, so, so basically what we did was we looked at these mutation accumulation lines that Vishali had uh, constructed. But instead of looking over very short timescales, we looked after 400 generations. And the question was, are there any changes in pyRNA-mediated regulation? Now, the crucial point to make here is that these changes are very likely due to genetic changes that accumulate in those animals over that time, right? But the question is, it's a bit complicated, but we're looking at epigenetic differences, or rather differences in classic pathways of epigenetic regulation that accumulate in those lines. But are those, those changes are likely secondary to the many genetic events that happen? Um, over that time frame. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So what we were particularly interested in here is a, a, the, the, the question of, and this is slightly complicated, but from, remember that I said that in order to look at mutations that are deleterious, neutral or beneficial we have to reduce the population size we have to only look at like one individual every generation to propagate um the corollary of that the 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 the, the other side of that coin is if you compare what happens when you look with a really small population size to when you have a larger population size you can see things that are detrimental Because those things will be overrepresented when you have a small population size compared to when you have a large population size. And so what we were interested in is what changes in small RNAs do we see in these small population size lines compared to when we have a large population size? And what was quite interesting is that pi RNA regulation goes pretty haywire in these small population sizes compared to in the larger population sizes. So population that immediately what, tells of what, what right, did you so we're comparing to one and um a nematode. One one nematode per generation up to a population size, uh, uh larger population sizes. It was even a hundred per generation. Yes, that's right. 100, generate, 100 individuals per generation. Yeah, so a very large population size, well, compared to one individual, 100 individuals per generation. So um, under those situations, you know, pyRNA regulation goes haywire and you get increased expression of transposable elements. 
And interestingly, that increased expression doesn't necessarily correspond to increased copy number of transposable elements. So they're not spreading, they're just becoming more expressed. And what that immediately tells you is that it's quite a simple thing, really, is that pi RNA mediated silencing of transposable elements is what we say is it's under purifying selection. So that means that changes to that are detrimental. So reduction in pi RNAs in nematodes is detrimental. And we can show that by this evolutionary method because it occurs when you have low population size, but it doesn't occur when you have a high population size. And although it's a, perhaps not a very surprising result, it's quite nice to actually be able to show that in this kind of way. Yeah. So the things you are currently working on is like comparing the epigenetic versus genetic uh, inheritance, uh, or what is it that you are working on right now and what are your plans for the next five years so until you have to file your next grant yeah so um what so there, there there are two things really that i'm interested in so the first is just to follow on from what we've been talking about it's trying to understand whether this process that we've shown in a very neutral way in other words, short-term fluctuations, which are epigenetic, but which go away again, whether that can actually contribute to evolution in a response to a selective pressure. So can it actually promote adaption or is it just a kind of phenomenon which has no, no consequence really? Um, and that is uh, something that we're designing experiments to test now. It's quite difficult to test it actually, um, but we have some ideas and um yeah we're we're working on that um, yeah so the second main idea really in the lab is i'm really passionate about the gold that is found in comparative analysis of epigenetic pathways across evolution and what we are trying to do is to find particular pathways which show many losses across different eukaryotes and then try to infer from those losses something about um, what might be driving those losses and then that can give us insights into the epigenetic pathway themselves and um, we're using these kind of comparative mechanisms comparative approaches where um, we study genomes across species But we're also doing it in a different circumstance. And I'm really excited about this because if you think about it, cancer is an evolutionary process. It occurs on a much faster time scale, but actually cancers are evolving. And many cancers show very strong changes in epigenetic mechanisms. So can we look across cancers at things that co-evolve with particular epigenetic pathways? And by looking at that co-evolution, maybe we can understand why it might be beneficial for a cancer to, for example, lose a particular chromatin remodeling enzyme, which is something that happens quite often in different cancers, or um, lose a particular histone methyltransferase, something of that kind. 
And um, that's something that um, we can then link up with our analysis across different species. And putting those two things together can enable us to get some really powerful insights, I think, into um, the sort of negative consequences sometimes of epigenetic mechanisms, exactly in the same way that we found with DNA methylation. And yeah, I'm really excited about this. And these are the two sort of major pathways that the lab is going down at the moment. Yeah. That sounds very interesting, but also very complicated to find. And then maybe also very like bioinformatics heavy to find yeah the cause of all this and to um, yeah get rid of the noise in the end yeah well i think that's right and, and and i think that that's why i think if you just look in cancer it can be too complicated and so what we're looking for is things that you find in species evolution and you see it in cancer and then that can really give you um, a way of narrowing down Because, of course, there are lots of things that co-evolve in cancer, which can be due to many very specific things to do with the particular development of that tumor. And we're hoping to be able to screen that out by looking for things that we also see across evolution um, of whole genomes. Um, yeah, and it seems to be, I mean, I don't want to give away too much, but it seems sure. to be that we're finding some really interesting things with this kind of approach. Um, and uh, yeah, so... Um, watch the space i think <laughs> yeah but of course i should say that i mean perhaps it's uh perhaps it's not very careerist of me but um i'm just very fascinated by these questions of of, of evolution of different pathways and i'm not really restricted to just epigenetics i'm interested in other things as well that um, seem to be evolving very rapidly and very different in different organisms and yet have some conserved properties across all of them and uh, i think it's a really um, exciting area that we're in right now because there's so much more information becoming available so many more genomes it's becoming a lot easier to sequence a genome and um, this i think is all feeding into a rich seam of data that could be sort of um, mined for this kind of um, analysis and so we're very excited about that i think in the future and i'd like to encourage more people anyone listening to this podcast perhaps to go and do it to look at your favorite gene across different species because you know you never know there might be something really interesting in there that could lead to you understanding a bit more about how your favorite gene works in mammals yeah you never know so before we close out this interview um did we miss something and uh, we didn't talk about and you still want to share <laughs> oh, I hard think. to say right <laughs> yeah uh, yeah so um, in the last it's now 15 minutes 15 minutes uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe give a short summary of what you would consider your most important finding or that would conclude like uh, all the work that you've done so far well I think that although It could have been known. I think um, we might have been the first people to really kind of point out how evolutionary labile some of these epigenetic mechanisms are. I mean, of course, people knew that DNA methylation wasn't present in C. elegans, for example. They certainly didn't know that pyRNAs were lost so many times independently across nematodes. And I think that 
that was pretty surprising for people to um uh, to, to to realize that i wouldn't say that what we did was particularly sophisticated but maybe realizing the possibility that some of these pathways that we think of as being very highly conserved actually aren't and also that we can learn something from that it's not just it's not just stamp collecting right in the case of dna methylation we actually understood i think something a lot more important about dna methylation by doing this comparative approach it's not just sort of like going into a museum and looking oh look at this dinosaur it's got a strange skull um it's actually trying to see can we learn anything about our own skull by looking at how the dinosaur skull evolved and i think that um that's something that um i really want to emphasize that there is that possibility of really getting new insight um, from looking at evolution and that's that's i think probably the most important message that i would like people to take away from what we've done um, and obviously eventually in the future i really would love to be able to say why it is that pi rnas are lost so frequently in different nematodes um, and if I found that out, then uh, I'd be very happy, but I'm not sure that I can bank on it. <laughs> so fingers crossed that you will. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so thank you, Peter, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.